So I'll be honest, I have never been a huge soccer fan, but watching the last three weeks of the World Cup has blown my mind. There was Iran's shocking win against Wales. There was the last-minute almost comeback by the Netherlands against Argentina. There was Morocco, this Cinderella team with its incredible, infallible goalie, the first African or Arab team to ever make it to the semifinals. And then there's me, a person who still cannot explain what offsides means. And all of a sudden, I am turning on the games while I'm sitting at my desk at work. I am gasping at the screen when a goal is scored. And I am planning my schedule around watching Argentina play France in the final on Sunday morning. So I cannot even imagine what it must be like to actually be there. You know, I'm not a sports reporter. My, my job is to write about geopolitics, about, about the world and global affairs. And that's my colleague Ashan Thoreau, who's been at the World Cup these last couple of weeks. But of course, uh, as a soccer obsessive, I made the case to my editors that this is uh, uh, something of tremendous global importance that becomes a vehicle of meaning that really transcends sport. And the fact that it was in Qatar itself was made it, you know, a particularly unique experience. Sean came on the show a few weeks ago to talk about Qatar and the controversies over human rights issues and allegations of labor abuses. That has been a theme ever since this country won the bid to host the World Cup. So everyone was wondering how the tournament would go. And for Ishan, the experience of being there as a fan was complicated. As a soccer fan, it was an incredible experience uh, being in such an intensely concentrated space where you have fans from dozens of countries, you have a kind of feast uh, of the sport. But of course, while there, it's, it's hard to also overlook the deeper social and political context surrounding the tournament. There were some pretty crude narratives about Qatar before the tournament started, and I think being there helped me think a bit more uh, deeply and hopefully with a bit more nuance about some of these narratives that we have. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 15th. Today, as the World Cup comes to a close this weekend, we are hearing from Ashan about what's been happening on and off the field in Qatar. The controversies, the triumphs. He'll talk about what's at stake ahead of Sunday's final match. And he's having this conversation with my colleague, Jeff Pierre. Jeff is the host of The Seven, the new morning podcast of The Post. And he's also a huge soccer fan. Like, literally the first time I met him, one of the first things we talked about was how much he loves soccer. So he's the perfect person to ask all the burning questions about this World Cup. All right, Jeff will take it from here. in the area where the World Cup was being hosted? Did it feel like thrown together? Like, what did it look like for people who weren't, you know, necessarily there to walk around? I think, frankly, it was quite impressive. Mm. The infrastructure, you know, we can talk about uh, the legacy of abuses and, and neglect that surrounds the construction of these projects, but Qatar winning the bid to host the World Cup gave it license to embark on a major project of infrastructure creation in their country. This is a country, after all, that's roughly the size of Connecticut, but it's not a very big space. And they've built whole new highways, dozens of new hotels, basically 
a bunch of satellite cities were constructed out of you know, thin air. And these are, you know, if you look at, say, Lusail, which will host the World Cup final, it's this gleaming kind of incredible urban uh, skyline of buildings that, that just were generated out of just the past few years. And it's quite surreal. And this is a place that has boomed in the last two decades, mostly on the back of its tremendous wealth in natural gas and petroleum reserves. And I think there is a sense that those natural gas reserves aren't going to stay forever. Climate change and the imperatives of climate change may push people in different directions and push economies in different directions. And so they saw this World Cup as a template to potentially work towards diversifying their economy, encouraging tourism. And, you know, by and large, when you're there, it was a pretty happy experience for the visitor. You could go to certain areas of, of Doha, the capital, or other parts where near World Cup stadiums and see people from all parts of the world uh, congregating together, getting along. There there was a real sense of joy among the fans, I think, partially because uh, it was a pretty interesting tournament. You had some really great surprises. You had this magical run of the Moroccan team that generated a lot of pan-Arab regional solidarity, uh, and yeah. especially because this was the first World Cup in the Middle East. This was something that really was animating some of the passions in Doha there, and it was kind of inescapable while you're there. And even, you know, to a certain extent, look, we're talking about a country where there are maybe somewhere close to 300,000 citizens in an overall population of close to 3 million people. So we're talking about a society that is mostly made out of foreign migrants who are there. And so as a visitor, you are spending most of your time interacting with, engaging with, talking to non-Qataris in Qatar, by and large. I'm not sure if I even interacted once at a shop or any kind of place where there was a worker uh, who was actually Qatari. That, that was a, mm. That's a quite surprising experience. Did you talk to any of the Qatari officials about any of this? Yes, I met with a, a number of officials, some folks who are working directly in the World Cup organizing committee. They feel like they were subject to a lot of misinformation about the way they went about their construction projects. And now I think you can take that perspective and, and see where they're coming from, but also recognize that there has been a legacy of documented abuses that unclear number of migrant workers, although they say only three, died in the construction of World Cup stadiums. You can point to the fact that their entire economy sits atop this infrastructure of labor that has been rife with abuse in the past, and, and that there are many folks now who say that Qatar also is a not particularly free and inclusive society for, for certain communities, specifically the LGBTQ population. And you can take all of that and put it in front of them and say, look, these are the criticisms. And then they'll come back to you and say, well, you know, not every country is the same in the world. Not every country has the same laws. We uh, on the labor front have, because we won the World Cup bid, implemented pretty significant reforms to how labor is administered in the country, whether those reforms will be implemented in a way that makes a lasting difference, we'll see. But I think it's impossible to deny that the labor situation in Qatar now, a society that is, of course, driven by foreign labor, is healthier now than it was, say, in 2010 when Qatar won the bid for the World Cup. I think that is a, and that's a point that the Qataris feel has been lost to the wider world, especially to its critics in the West. Yeah. So this is a legacy that the Qataris think is important and part of why their World Cup is special. Yeah. That's interesting. 
Yeah, the last time we spoke with you was right before you left to attend those games. And you talked a lot about how geopolitics always affects the World Cup. Has that been true so far in the tournament? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, there have been all sorts of interesting storylines, uh, political storylines, flowing, coursing through this World Cup. Uh, you know, when I left, uh, it was just before the U.S. played Iran in that crunch match. And uh, whoever basically came out of that would make it to the next round. The U.S. ended up beating Iran in a pretty nervy affair. And, you know, the Iranian team was in and of itself this source of (laughs) quite a big political headache for the Qataris. Because you had in the games involving Iran fans who both supported the regime and also who hated the regime and were sympathetic to the protests taking place in the country right now, fighting with each other. And specifically, you saw kind of pro-regime elements in the stadium attacking opposition fans, and it created a major security situation for the Qataris. They had to make every Iran game a kind of special security context. And so I think quite quietly, although they would never admit this in public, the Qataris were really happy when the U.S. defeated Iran because it meant that this kind of particular headache that they had during the tournament was over and that the Iranian team would go away and the fans would disperse and they wouldn't have these these flashpoints of tensions that every single World Cup match created for them. And then what was really interesting to me was the dynamic that followed the Arab teams at the World Cup, specifically Morocco. And when Morocco beat Spain, the thing that was so ubiquitous in the stadiums, on the streets was not just the Morocco flag, but the Palestinian flag. Mm. And the ubiquity of the Palestinian flag as an emblem in this tournament was really fascinating to me because it's not simply that a kind of virtue signaling around a cause that has been neglected by a lot of countries. It's a real sign of solidarity among Arab people, not governments, because, of course, remember, Morocco has engaged in these normalization agreements with Israel. But... A lot of fans coming to the World Cup wanted to show that they are together with their Arab partners, that despite what their governments do, and we're talking about governments that are in various forms corrupt, autocratic, squeeze the space of dissent and free speech in their societies, that this World Cup provided a kind of platform for Arabs and people from the Middle East from various contexts to unite together and voice a kind of togetherness that in other settings they can never do. Yeah. Let's talk about the games themselves. You know, you talked about sort of the fan reaction to Morocco winning. What was it like to actually be in the stadium attending one of these matches? I went to two games with Morocco. The first was Morocco's game against Canada. That was their last game of the first group stage. They needed to win, although the pressure wasn't that great. And they won quite comfortably. And from that moment, I knew I had to go to their next game because their fans were incredible. The loudest I, well, apart from the Argentines, the loudest I had encountered at the World Cup. There was a real also joy among others participating and going to the tournament because you really felt that Morocco had been embraced by Qatar, by by every uh, Muslim and Arab and basically non-Westerner in the country. And they, they became this kind of cause celebre for, you know, to use a complicated, perhaps 
fraught term, uh, the global south. I'm of Indian origin, and I felt a, a kind of kinship with the Moroccans because of what they were doing. They beat three successive European colonial powers to get to where yeah, they were. Yeah, it was amazing. It was it was really amazing to watch. Yeah, and, and people, that's not that's not just a kind of glib journalist anecdote. That's something people really thought about and felt and, and enjoyed. There was a genuine kind of post-colonial glee, and you could feel it even in the stadiums. I would say that some games were quite flat in terms of atmosphere, especially the ones with European teams, because I don't think that many Europeans travel to Qatar. But games that involved teams from, like, the Japanese, games that involved, of course, Morocco, and, of course, any Latin American team were just wonderful festivals of the sport and really loud, great atmosphere, a great sense of cultures meeting together. Of course, I should say that there was... One real dark moment that has overshadowed a lot of my experience, which is having learned about the passing of Grant Wall, who was someone I and many in the journalistic community in and around soccer, in and around even just global affairs, have admired for a very long time. And uh, I was sitting next to him for a couple of games. I think you could easily say that Grant Wall was the preeminent soccer journalist in the United States for a generation. And not just that, he was a, a pioneering kind of trailblazing journalist. He really put soccer on the map in a particular way. And Grant died last weekend while covering the Argentina versus Netherlands quarterfinal. We learned su subsequently that he suffered an aortic aneurysm. And the legacy will leave behind in terms of helping grow the game and putting American soccer on the map, putting America's view of soccer on the map as well, I think is something we'll have to cherish and embrace, and it's sad that we won't have him anymore uh, leading the way. You know, you as somebody who has sort of been watching World Cups, have the results of the games, like, did they go as expected for you? I think this World Cup has had the the right mix of wonderful, you know, upsets and underdog victories, as well as a, g a good number of heavyweights making it through because you do want to see some of the best players shine on this stage. And now we have a World Cup final that is going to give us a real amazing clash between Argentina and France. To a certain extent, you get this feeling that Argentina has the kind of stamp of destiny on it because of its... Yeah, tremendous player, Leo Messi. Uh, he's 35 years old. This is almost certainly his last World Cup. He has yet to win this. Of course, he's going up against an incredibly good French team led by his teammate in Paris Saint-Germain, uh, Kylian Mbappé. So it, it's a real clash of the titans. I think we're all in for a quite interesting uh, World Cup final on Sunday. There are obviously interesting wrinkles to it. Both Mbappe and Messi, as I said, play on the same team for their day jobs at Paris Saint-Germain. This is a team that is, of course, owned by Qatar, essentially. It is a it is a team that's powered itself to the top of the European tables by investing in a lot of Qatari money into the best players in the world. And so that's a kind of wrinkle that the Qataris are very pleased with because here in their World Cup, their superstars on their payroll are going to be at the biggest stage. After the break, Ishan and Jeff talk about the larger symbolism of Sunday's final match between France and Argentina. We'll be right back. So, 
For soccer fans, we know that this game has another kind of significance. Argentina's Lionel Messi, you said he's 35, arguably the greatest player of all time. And he's going to be playing against Francis star Kylian Mbappe. And, you know, Kylian is sort of in this weird place where he is a very new player to the scene. And he already has a chance to get his second World Cup Mm -hmm. title, and he's only 23. I'm looking at this from the outside looking in, and it feels like there's a lot on the line for both of them. Am I reading that correctly? I I think so. I would say there's much more on the line for Messi because this is this kind of fateful moment for him. He's won everything but the World Cup. You know, in 2014, he came close but lost to Germany in the final in Brazil. And uh, in 2018, it was a crushing disappointment for Argentina. Their team kind of really flopped out of the tournament. And there was this speculation at the time that, fine, Messi will never win this World Cup. And that'll be part of his legacy that he could not, despite his immense talents, uh, lead Argentina, this great, rather neurotic, soccer-obsessive nation, to its third World Cup triumph. And, uh, and now uh, he's at the head of a team that is arguably better constructed for him that has a, a pretty interesting and dynamic and rather young set of players who have come to the fore and uh, and are are you know going to be uh, the workers toiling around him as he manifests his genius on the field but they are going up against Mbappe in France and the thing about France is that on paper it is the most stacked nation in in soccer it's a team that has a bevy of injuries to major players, including star striker Karim Benzema, who's not played a, a single game in the World Cup. And yet, they're still incredibly talented, and they have so many tremendous players. And I think it'll be a tall order for Argentina, because this is a French team that has experience of winning the World Cup in 2018, that is effective, ruthless in many ways. And um, Mbappe didn't really have a great semifinal against Morocco, where he was going up against his one of his closest friends in soccer, Ashraf Hakimi, the Moroccan right back. Uh, but he has moments where he's just impossible to stop, in the same way that Messi is. And uh, you can see him really tormenting the Argentine defense. You can also see Argentina's penchant for the dark arts come to the fore and perhaps undermine undermine themselves a little bit because they are a team that's always kind of playing on the edge of a psychotic breakdown and that's that's part of the Argentinian soccer psyche a little bit and I worry that against a team as good as France things could unravel for them in ways that uh, they would uh, not hope yeah yeah let's let's switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about the French side mm-hmm. um, you know we talked a little bit about Kylian Mbappe he's 23. You know, this is his second World Cup. He has a chance to win his second World Cup trophy, which is a feat in itself. How has he been playing throughout this tournament? He's a tremendous player, and he is the heir apparent to someone like Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo of Portugal. He is the face of the next generation of mega superstars in soccer. And uh, he will be up there for maybe the same amount of time as Messi and Ronaldo have been in the global imagination. And so him winning a second World Cup by his early 20s is remarkable. It's also a testament to how good France is and how how deep a squad they have. And, you know, France, the story about France is interesting. 
It is easily the most multicultural team in Europe. Its, its team is largely drawn from immigrant communities in and around Paris that are basically at this point in time the global epicenter of soccer. I can't think of a geographic space anywhere else in the world that is generating as many amazing players as the suburbs of Paris do. And, you know, and yeah. France is interesting because it is this team very much of a kind of new France. It's a team of a shifting identity in France. And the French have not always had an easy time reckoning with that because France is a country institutionally that is colorblind, doesn't really believe in talking about minorities as minorities. Everyone is just French in their minds. But of course, in reality, discrimination genuinely exists. Islamophobia exists. And the French team is often a kind of crucible of these debates over French identity, debates over European identity. And invariably, its success is seen as a kind of valediction of French integration. And its failures, sometimes especially by the far right in France, are cast as a symptom of the problem of assimilation of French minorities. So I think, you know, a French victory in the World Cup will be just another feather in the cap for this new France. Yeah. I even remember um, in 2018 when France won the last World Cup, I think it was like, you know, different spaces like Black Twitter was saying Africa won the World Cup. And I know that even on Twitter, you could see that that was ruffling some feathers of people saying, you know, in that moment, it was kind of interesting because then they weren't African, then they were French. Yeah. I mean, the French have a really hard time uh, thinking about hyphenated identity. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do some speculation. We got France on one side. We've got Argentina on one side. The young Kylian Mbappe on one side, you know, the seasoned uh, veteran Lionel Messi on the other side. Who do you have your money on? My heart, uh, because I, as a child, uh, was in love with Diego Maradona and Argentina of that era, uh, says Messi in Argentina, but my brain uh, suggests that the French are going to be too good for them and too are organized and too efficient for the Argentines. So I would suggest that it's going to be... Uh, a narrow, but perhaps not too narrow, French victory. Maybe like a 3-1 for France. How do you think we'll look back to the 2022 World Cup? That's something I asked a lot of Qatari officials and other folks involved in the organizing of the World Cup while I was in Doha. And, you know, on the sporting level, of course, this could be the tournament of Messi. It certainly will be the tournament of Morocco, because their run has really captured the global imagination in a special way outside the games. Of course, uh, it's, a, it's more complicated. And I think there are a couple of things to think about as we go forward. The World Cup was, for the better part of a decade, surrounded by controversy. And so now, in the years to come, uh, we'll see what happens with the stadiums. For example, uh, there are going to be deconstructing some of the stadiums to send them to other parts of the world. They're going to be repurposing some of the stadiums into other facilities for Qataris. Uh, the Qataris, of course, believe that the World Cup was a kind of coming out moment for them, something that allowed them to push through major infrastructure, push through a certain amount of political reforms to their state and to the way they administer labor. Whether those reforms are implemented in, in profound or meaningful ways, uh, we should pay attention. We should watch in the years to come. Uh, on a human level, 
Uh, it's also important to see that uh, what happens to hundreds of thousands of migrants. I think there's a chance that by this time next year, the actual population of Qatar will have decreased because 300 to 400,000 people will be out of jobs. A lot of contracts are expiring for workers in December. And I think on a broader level, uh, the Qatari officials I spoke to saw this World Cup as a moment to position themselves on the world stage in a particular way. And they think that this World Cup is the, the start of a new phase in their place in the region. Ashan, thank you so much for talking. My pleasure. Ishan Theroar is a foreign affairs columnist at The Post and the anchor of the international politics newsletter Today's Worldview. He spoke with my colleague, Jeff Pierre. Jeff hosts The Post's new morning podcast, The Seven. You should definitely subscribe to his show by finding The Seven on your podcast app. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sabby Robinson with help from Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Lucy Perkins. So about this time, you might be looking for some last-minute gift ideas. And you probably want something that can arrive pretty quickly. We can help. Right now, you can save over 70% on a new premium subscription to The Washington Post. And here's where the part comes in about the last-minute gift— That new premium subscription comes with a bonus subscription to share. You can find this deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.